Welcome to the 1-0 podcast hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner. The 1-0 podcast is part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel. And today we will discuss Texas' first round exit as a three seed to 14 seeded Abilene Christian, what that means for Shaka Smart and what that means for Texas basketball's future. Then we will get into some brighter news with spring football starting Steve Sarkeesian going with entering his first practices as Longhorns head coach. What are some storylines we're watching and what are some things to keep note of? Listen to both our show and everyone gets a trophy hosted by Kevin Dunn and Paul Wadlington. Subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts and please rate and review to let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about. And if you'd like to contact us directly, send us emails at everyone gets a trophy with the number one at gmail.com. That's everyone gets a trophy at gmail.com. And of course we, our show would not be possible Audio-visual consultations. If you want to spruce up your home TV setup, you got to do it with the pros at Audio-Visual Consultations. They're the best in the business, and they've been in business here in Central Texas for more than three decades. So if you want a bigger screen, if you want surround sound, if you want a patio TV setup, AV Consultations can make it all happen for you. Just call them 255-8678. And the One to Know podcast is also brought to you by Altstat Brewery, Altstat Beer, it is German beer made here and the absolute best beer that you can find in Central Texas, available at your favorite grocery stores, liquor stores, and convenience stores. Also, some of your favorite bars and restaurants throughout Central Texas as well. It is the official beer of the 1-0 podcast. It should be the official beer of you as well. It's Altstadt beer. No impurities, no regrets. So, uh, Texas made a first-round exit in a pretty... Pretty terrible basketball game. Uh, Longhorns had 22 turnovers, had a chance to, and even took the lead at the very end. Uh, but a, a 58% free throw shooter stepped up after Matt Coleman committed a foul in the final seconds and made both. And ACU pulled the upset of the probably of what the, the top two or three upset of the first weekend of the tournament, right there, along with Oral Roberts beating Ohio State, and uh, it wasn't the final moments that lost this game. Uh, it was That game was lost in the entire week leading up to it. Texas knew that Abilene Christian was going to run a very unique style of defense when they haven't seen in the Big 12, when that's predicated on forcing turnovers, and, uh, well, it didn't seem like they prepared for it, and those 22 turnovers resulted in 17 more shots for Abilene Christian, uh, it's not like they were making a high clip. They weren't at all. They shot terribly from the field. Uh, but the fact that Texas was not getting scoring opportunities on 22 possessions and that resulted in 17 more shots, just, you know, law of, uh, I don't know if it's law of averages, but averages and volume, it's going to, it's what got the Wildcats to the point they needed to do, they needed to get to and help them uh, be a three seed as a number 14 in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I won't bury the lead here, Joe. I won't beat around the bush. I won't sugarcoat it. This was the most embarrassing loss in the history of Texas Longhorn basketball. Now, obviously, there have been more embarrassing seasons than the season we just were a part of. I mean, within the last decade, this team missed the tournament three times. One year, they went 11-22. and One year, under Rick Barnes, they lost in the first round of the CBI tournament. Like, Obviously, they've had way worse seasons than this season as a whole, but just in terms of individual games, this is the most embarrassing loss in program history. And usually, 
when you have an upset of, of this magnitude, Joe, in the NCAA tournament, it's usually because the underdog played out of their minds, right? They had a guy or two go off for like 30 points. Someone made six threes. They just played a crazy game. They played an A game, and on that specific night, it was enough to beat the heavily favored team. That's usually what happens when you get a crazy upset like this. But you mentioned it. In this game, I mean, Abilene Christian played a C-level game, and it was good enough to beat Texas. Like, that's how bad Texas was. And you mentioned the shooting percentages for ACU They're the first team in the history of the NCAA tournament, not just this year, the history of the NCAA tournament to win a game despite shooting under 30% from the floor and under 20% from three-point land. I mean, before Saturday's game, teams that shot that poorly were 0-40 in the NCAA tournament. Like, this game was basically unlosable, and Texas still lost it. It's unbelievable. So, The worst tournament loss in Texas history by far. I mean, the previous lowest seed that Texas has ever lost to was an 11 seed. I just don't think they've ever suffered a more embarrassing or more pathetic loss in program history, Joe. I mean, Abilene Christian was a D2 program less than 10 years ago. It's only their second ever trip to the NCAA tournament, their first ever tournament win. Like, this is not a good program. And then they went and got their ass kicked by UCLA in the round of 32. Like, this is not a good team that Texas lost to, and they did not play really well on Saturday, and they still found a way to beat Texas. You said 22 turnovers. I had 23 on my notes. Either way, it was way too many. Uh, The most turnovers the Longhorns have had in a game since 2012. You talked about the rebounding edge. I mean, Texas had an obvious size advantage. That's been one of the biggest strengths of this team all year long. We talked about that before the season even started, Joe, about how deep and how talented and how long this front court was for this Texas basketball team. And Abilene Christian was the smallest team in the field of 68. One of the smallest teams in all of college basketball this year. You felt like Texas had an obvious advantage in the size department, and they got out-rebounded, and they got out-hustled, and they got out-scrapped, and they got out-coached. I mean, it was just a pathetic performance by Texas. And you know, for Shaka Smart, Joe, it couldn't have come at a worse time. Yeah, exactly. I think you've made no... you. Not, I think I know you've made it no secret how you feel about the program under Shaka Smart, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people within, you know, Longhorn fandom who believe the same thing. But they circumstances gifted him, really did gift him uh, additional opportunities. It was the NIT, uh, which it was a fun run, but it's hard to move on from a coach with a large guaranteed contract, and after he just won the last game of the season, so. Onward they went. COVID happened. Didn't have to, not that that was a gift by any sense, but kind of turned out to be for Shaka Smart. Again, large guaranteed contract, not as large anymore, uh, but they had both the combination of everybody coming back and adding Greg Brown, and it was basically a lot of people, kind of myself included, thought, you know, maybe he doesn't really deserve this extra year, uh, but this team may be good enough to overcome a lot of Shaka's shortcomings. And to be fair, I know that he has not grown enough on this job, but he has grown. The, the stock of smart that was there uh, in 2015 is way, way different than the stock of smart that is there right now in 2021. I think there's been a, a lot of growth by him, and that's something that most coaches at Texas are not afforded the opportunity to do. Uh, I don't think that you – know, I think it was justifiable to let Charlie Strong go, but – you know, that was a G5 coach coming off his uh, first head coaching gig. 
and he he did not learn enough quickly enough to to turn things around. Same thing with Tom Herman, G5 coach, second career head coaching job. He was afforded a little bit more opportunity to learn on the job, but obviously didn't learn enough. Shaka Smart was afforded a opportunity. I'm not sure any other coach, at least in our lifetimes, were afforded at Texas and still was not able to make up for it, was still not able to utilize it enough to succeed in a place where he has not succeeded in literally 10 years uh, and I was at another school. So it wasn't just the, the micro of how bad, you know, Matt Coleman having a terrible, a, a very bad game for what's probably his last game. Jericho Sims being a non-factor. He had 10 points. Three were on dunks in the first half. He had, I think, one field goal in the second half. Then there was just some random rotation. Donovan Williams didn't play a minute in the Big 12 tournament, and yet you're throwing him in in a tight game uh, in the first round of the NCAA tournament. I, I, I'm, yeah, I was just arguing for his growth, but then you see some signs of some, you know, lack of growth. It, it was just the, the micro of it is all bad. I mean, losing yeah. in the NCAA tournament to a 14, you're going to end up on one shining moment. Again, Texas has done that, I think, in its last three NCAA <laughs> tournament appearances, and uh, not for good reason. Uh, so, But it's not just the micro, it's that macro, in that he was given so much more opportunity than probably any coach, at least, like I mentioned, in our lifetime. Yeah. And it still wasn't enough. He didn't grow enough. He didn't learn enough. And Shaka Smart's probably... Either, well, we can kind of get into uh, scenarios after we're done talking about this current season and current team. Every And we've said this about Tom Herman. He's probably going to end up being a better coach in a few years, but he's not a good coach right now, and he's not probably, most likely not a good enough coach for Texas right now. I think that's obvious at this point. I mean, six years, zero tournament wins for Shaka Smart. That's inexcusable at a place like Texas. I know we prioritize football and I know we prioritize baseball more than basketball, but still, with the resources here, all of the talent in the state of Texas, I mean, everything that's working in Texas's favor to have zero tournament wins in six years is inexcusably bad. Hell, if Shaka Smart would have won one game in this tournament, right? If Texas would have beat Abilene Christian but then lost to UCLA earlier this week, I would have said that's still not enough. Like, one tournament win in six years is not enough at a place like UT. But uh, that's where we're at right now with Shaka Smart. And all of the things that worked out for Texas during that five-game winning streak to end the season, right? The three wins in the regular year and then the two wins in the Big 12 tournament in Kansas City. All of the things that worked in those five games, we didn't see them at all, Joe against Abilene Christian. I mean, the guards were passive. The team was not playing with pace. They were not running up and down the floor. This team was not making it a point of emphasis to get the ball to Jericho Sims on the low block. I mentioned that Abilene Christian is the smallest field in the NCAA tournament, excuse me, the smallest team in the NCAA tournament field, and Texas didn't go to that well. I mean, Jericho Sims was coming off the best game of his life. How the hell does he only have three shots in this game? He didn't miss. He went three for three. Why is he only taking three shots in this game? I mean, it just makes no sense. All of the things that we were praising Shaka Smart for, for what he did in Kansas City, and he deserved that praise. That's coming from me, a guy who has been anti-Shaka Smart since pretty much the day he was hired. He coached damn well. I think his best two-game stretch, maybe his best two games he's ever coached at the University of Texas were those games in Kansas City. But all of that stuff that went well, that Texas went to up there at the Sprint Center, or the T-Mobile Center, as they call it now, we didn't see it at all. 
And we talked about it leading up to the game, Joe. I mean, Abilene Christian wanted a rock fight. They wanted it ugly. They wanted a defensive game. They wanted the tempo to be slow. I've heard people make the comparison between Abilene Christian and Texas Tech, right? People were calling ACU Texas Tech light. And Golding, Joe Golding, the head coach of Abilene Christian, is a Chris Beard disciple. And they're really, really good friends. Like, they wanted to muck it up. They wanted a game played in the 50s or 60s. And I know I said it on the show. I think I said it on this podcast, too. Texas is going to run into some trouble if this is a game that's played in the 50s and 60s. If they slow the game down and they rely on their half-court offense, which has just been garbage all six years under Shaka Smart, if they try to play a game like that or if they get lulled into a game like that, then this game is going to come down to the wire. Texas needed to play with speed. They needed to play with tempo. They needed to play with aggression. And they didn't do any of that, Joe. And they just looked scared. They looked tight. They really did look tight. Abilene Christian, their body language was better. It looked like they were having way more fun out there. Texas looked nervous. And they got beat. Once again, out-hustled, out-scrapped, out-coached, out-everything. This is not a the better team lost. I mean, Texas was not the better team on Saturday. They deserve to lose. When you make the mistakes that the Longhorns make, uh, made, you don't deserve to come out on top. So it's frustrating as hell, man. I mean, another reason why I think this is the most embarrassing loss in school history is the expectations that were thrown upon this team. Hell, I was drinking the Kool-Aid at the end of the year. I had Texas making the Final Four. They played so well down the stretch. And their draw, I thought, was very favorable in the East region. I thought they had everything set up for them to make a deep, deep tournament run, and they couldn't even get past the first round. They couldn't even get past Abilene Christian. So that makes the loss even more, I keep using the word embarrassing. I should open up the source and find something else, but that just feels like the best way to describe what happened on Saturday. Just, uh, just awful, man. I mean, really, really awful, and it's inexcusable. And if there are some people out there who are still trying to defend Shaka Smart before that game, I don't know how you can do it anymore. And then if there were some people even trying to defend Shaka Smart after that game, after watching UCLA beat Abilene Christian by 20 the other day, I don't know how you can do it anymore, Joe. I mean, it feels like the fan base has made a complete 180 on this guy. And it feels like 95-plus percent of Texas basketball fans are ready to make a move. And I know the buyout is still there. It's $7.1 million. Shaka still has two years left on his contract. And, look, you just paid a $15 million buyout to get rid of Tom Herman. You've got the South End Zone project. You've got the Moody Center, obviously the new basketball arena coming. You've got all sorts of money being thrown around down there on the 40 acres. But, Joe, if you really care about basketball, I think the time to make a move is is right now. Yeah, completely fair. And I think there may not be – you know, if you're of that mind, there may not be a better time or a more necessary time because let's think about what's going on with this roster. Donovan Williams <clears throat> entered the NCAA transfer portal. Royce Ham, uh, after graduating, is going to use uh, find another school for his fifth year of eligibility. Although seniors like Matt Coleman and Jericho Sims, uh, they have the chance to come back. Those are guys who can probably go make money playing basketball somewhere next year. Maybe it's overseas for Coleman. That's still good money. That's getting paid to do what you love. Jericho Sims could find himself picked up by an NBA team, maybe thrown in the G League or, you know, at best case scenario, stashed in the second round. Uh, you're not going to – Greg Brown, even though he probably should come back for his own development, is going to go get paid to get developed mm-hmm. somewhere. Uh, same with Kai Jones. You know, maybe Andrew Jones as well. Uh, you know, who, who knows what this roster looks like? Who knows if this recruiting class completely stays together? It's a solid four-man class, 
But are you really, really about to give Shaka Smart, after all these years, another chance at what's going to be <laughs> basically a full rebuild? That, 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 that doesn't seem like it'd be a, a very prudent move, especially when you're probably wanting to drum up as much <laughs> drum, drum up hmm. as much uh, excitement as you can for moving into the Moody Center. And yeah. I, I think you mentioned that. Remember, the school is pretty much off the hook on having to pay for a brand-new basketball arena thanks to the Oak View Group and the City of Austin and I think the Moody Foundation as well. Uh, but still, uh, you, you can't – if you're trying to sell season tickets – if you're trying to help the pay back the Oakview group, you need a lot more people to be excited about this yeah. program. And I'm not sure if that's going to be possible after this season and then probably after next season. And I know that, you know, Texas is going to lose some guys to the portal. They'll probably gain guys from the portal as well, just with the way the basketball landscape works. And I think you'll see, you know, I, I think even in recent weeks of, with guys who enter the portal, you'll see some of the basketball recruitment types talk about how Texas has interest, but that's just so much volatility ahead of year seven. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that's a really tough sell. And Brad, I think you know how lenient I am. I'm, I'm very slow to make calls on people. And in my own head, I, I didn't, I was not out and out, you know, ready to see or thinking that Tom Herman should have gone until the Oklahoma game this past year. And that was before uh, the events of after the game as well. Just that result was kind of what, what told me it was time. I have kind of said that after last season, uh, yeah, that loss to Oklahoma State at the end of the year, that really soured a taste in my mouth as far as shock and smart goes. But I just, you know, the events let me know that he's coming back. And, well, he's going to have a good team. Let's see what happens. And we, we have now seen what happens. So yeah. it, it's – It's a really, really tough prospect, I think, for Chris Del Conte to think that Shaka Smart is going to be able to turn things around again. Uh, I don't know how what the process looks like uh, as far as you know if Texas were to try and move on from him, what they would want to do. I think you honestly have to wait on University of Indiana because any top level. uh, coaching prospect that you want to get into seems like Indiana is ready to fire the money cannon. And that's not something I, don't, I feel like Texas basketball is really prone to do. So I don't know. It, it's just kind of a tough limbo spot. I don't know if there's any reason to, you know, hurry up and make a move. Uh, but you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's just a very, very tough spot right now for Chris Del Conte and, and unfortunately for Shaka Smart as well, but he has, mm. he has put himself in that position. I just I don't think it's that tough of a spot, Joe. I really don't. I mean, I think the loss to Abilene Christian. Well, we're not the ones raising $7 million, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know what, I don't think it's a tough decision. I don't know how easy or hard it mm-hmm. is to raise mm-hmm. $7 million. Now, I assume CDC is going to be able to do it because he's raised, what, $300 million for the Moody Center? And another $100 million plus for the football renovations going on at DKR. I don't know the exact numbers. And you mentioned basketball is getting some help from Oakview Group and maybe the Moody Foundation. But, look, fundraising has not been an issue for CDC. And money is never an issue for the University of Texas. So I think someone or some ones would be able to fork over the $7.1 million to make it happen. I just don't think this is a difficult decision to make at all. I think it's a decision that has to be made. If If you want to tell your fan base that you care about basketball then you have to make this move. And sure, you don't have to rush it, but uh, I mean, 
I don't know, man. The, the, to me, the silence is deafening. To me, the fact that we haven't heard anything from CDC about Shaka Smart's future tells me everything that you need to know, that a move is coming and a move needs to happen very, very soon. And I just don't know how you can play devil's advocate with this thing, right? Like my job as a radio host, I think, is to try to come up with counterpoints and counterarguments and, hey, present both sides to the story. And it just it doesn't feel like there are any counterpoints. It doesn't feel like there's anything that you can point to to tell people that Shaka Smart deserves to be brought back for another year. I mean, it took him six years to build a team that we actually felt really good about, Joe. And then you mentioned all the turnover that they're going to have this offseason. Like, is it going to take him another six years to feel like we have a team that can make a Sweet 16 run, let alone a Final Four run? Like, that's there's just nothing. And look, there were a lot of bright spots this season. They were ranked in the top five in the country at one point. They won the Maui Invitational for the first time in school history. They won the Big 12 Tournament title for the first time in school history. The three seed was the highest seed they've been since 2008. I get that, but success in this sport is determined by what happens in the NCAA tournament. And everything just kind of feels like a waste because they couldn't get it done in the NCAA tournament. So if you're Texas, you have to make the move. I mean, to me, it would have been a tough decision. Maybe if Shaka Smart had won a game or won two games, then maybe you could make the case for him to stick around. I still wouldn't agree with it, but that's probably what would have happened. But now, I mean, it feels like the decision is already made. And I will say one more thing, Joe. Maybe we can get into some candidates here, potential replacement candidates if you want. But there are two arguments that I've heard used a lot over the years in defense of Shaka Smart and really just in defense of Texas basketball as a whole. Uh, The first one is, you know, football schools, traditional football powers, they can't be good at basketball. Like, if you just don't prioritize basketball, you're not going to have sustained success in basketball. Well, you look at the teams that are still alive in the Sweet 16. You've got Michigan. You've got Alabama. You've got USC. You've got Oregon. You've got Florida State. I mean, those are all traditional football powers that are still playing. And you've got Arkansas in there, too. I know Arkansas is not a traditional football power, but, of course, they prioritize football way more than basketball. Like, you've got a lot of football schools that are having some success. So it is very, very possible and plausible to win at a so-called football school. And also, Joe... There are a number of coaches that were hired two years ago that are still alive in the NCAA tournament today. Juwan Howard at Michigan, Nate Oates at Alabama, Eric Musselman at Arkansas, Mick Cronin at UCLA. All of those coaches have their teams in the Sweet 16 in year two. And three of those four coaches are top three seeds. Look, Juwan Howard walked into a great situation taking over for John Beeline at Michigan. But those other guys, Alabama basketball, Arkansas basketball, I mean, Arkansas hadn't been good since... The mid-90s, the Strolling Nolan days. Like, it shouldn't take you, my point is it shouldn't take you six freaking years to win a tournament game. And now it's going to be at least seven years for Jacques Smart to win a tournament game. So, like, just all the arguments that I've heard over the years, they're not there. I just, I can't come up with anything to argue in favor of keeping Shaka Smart around. I really can't. And there's enough money here to where the money's not an issue. So if that's uh, what you would lean towards money's not an issue at the University of Texas. So, I don't know, man. I mean, they got to to get this done. They just have to. And you talked about it with the new arena coming. They have to instill some faith, some confidence in this fan base in order to sell tickets because otherwise that's going to be as empty as the flan has been the last couple of years if this is the product that you're bringing into the Moody Center in two seasons. So, I think you're spot on there. I don't know about getting into candidates because, I mean, we still have a Sweet 16 and Elite 8 to go on to, but I think there's a fair question there. If you had it your way, and I've, got a, I've had a pretty uh, 
pretty clear vision on my answer to this question for a while. But if you had it your way, who's the next head coach of Texas basketball? Oh, if I had it my way, now I can go unrealistic. Realistically. Okay. I was going to say, if I had it my way, then uh, Jay Wright, come on down. Or Mark Few, come on down. But uh, those guys are not realistic, and Texas is not going to be able to money whip Villanova or Gonzaga or the Boston Celtics for Brad Stevens uh, to get either of those or any of those guys. I think Chris Beard would still be my top choice. I really do. Uh, He's a guy who's proven he can win in the tournament. Not only did he get to the national title game one year, but he got to the Elite Eight in another season and he won a tournament game this year as well with a team that did not have the talent that Texas had. He's got a lot of ties to the state of Texas. Hell, he's a Texas grad. Uh, I think that'd be a perfect, perfect fit. So I would love Chris Beard, uh, but his buyout is hefty, and it's heftier for a Big 12 school, and it's heftier for an in-state school as well. So Texas would have to not only pay Shaka's buyout, but pay Beard's buyout as well. But I think that's still realistic. I think that's still feasible. Uh, man. And then another guy, like, I don't think Scott Drew is realistic. I think he's, if he leaves, he's going to take the Arizona job because that's where his brother is and that's where his parents are and his dad is not doing too well. And Arizona's a better basketball school than Texas just is. Uh, another guy I would look at, though, is Brad Underwood. I think he's a guy you have to keep on your radar. I know Illinois had a disappointing early tournament exit this year. Uh, but Brad Underwood's a guy who's coached in this conference. He coached for a year at Oklahoma State. He's a guy who coached in the state. He was at Stephen F. Austin for three years and I think made the tournament all three years, actually won a couple of tournament games there at SFA, and he's done really, really good things at Illinois. I mean, he had them as a one seed this year and a couple of All-Americans on their roster. So that would be another guy I would look at, but I still think for me, Joe, in terms of realistic options, Chris Beard would be number one. What about you? I'm good. I think my option's realistic, but it's uh, it's way different than yours. And uh, I've been I've been holding this opinion for about a year now. Give me Roy L. Ivy. Give mm. me a guy who I think that KD Kevin Durant swears by. Obviously, he probably wouldn't be uh, with the Nets as he is right now uh, if it weren't for a little bit of that symbiotic relationship. After not, never even playing uh, with him at Texas. He's a guy who's been on an NBA bench for several years uh, from the development level at the G League to, I think, at, at you know Oklahoma City and then with the Nets. He kind of was a player coach for a little while uh, towards the tail end of his career, and he's working with Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni. And it would also be a lean into a, a recent trend of having players, you know, alumni, former players who obviously have basketball experience come back and serve as head coach at their alma mater. I mean, the obvious one is Patrick Ewing, and those results are still pretty mixed. I, I don't know if uh, we're, yeah. we're thinking of him unless Georgetown goes on a run in the Big East tournament. But Patrick Ewing had been on a NBA bench for years and years. I think he was a coach under you know, Rick Adelman or Jeff Van Gundy when Yao Ming was in Houston. And I think he was also with the Magic, maybe? Well, maybe that was playing days. Anyway, Patrick Ewing had years of experience. Uh, Juwan Howard was kind of a, uh, again, a player coach type figure for the heat before he may have become a coach. So you can have, you know, there's a risk there. You could either get Juwan Howard, which is unbelievable, or you get Penny Hardaway or you get Jerry Stackhouse who are at different jobs in Michigan. uh, But still uh, they're, they're not totally having a bunch of success. Heck, I mean, look at Patrick Ewing. I, I would think that, almost two decades uh, as a coach on an NBA bench, in addition to being, you know, one of the greatest 
centers of all time being at the alma mater would probably help him out. It just hasn't happened yet. So there's definitely some risk there. Uh, but I feel like with a guy like Ivy, you would be able to get a lot of people bought into the program who, not to say that Shaka Smart has alienated people, for, you know, as, as alums and stuff like that. But when you're, you provide the results you have, you're not doing as much to endear yourself to the program. Yeah. And I think that a guy like Ivy, you bring his basketball smarts, you bring his Texas connectedness, and you bring in a great story. A guy who used to, you know, run the floor at the Irwin Center is now going to run the show at the Irwin Center. So that's that's kind of where I I see it. Of course, I think that Beard or Underwood uh, would be great. I, I Scott Drew, I'll, eh, eh, you know, I think there's some some things he said about Texas in the past that even in his own head uh, would preclude him from taking that job. So uh, if yeah. I had to make my pick and I had the magic wand, I would bring in the current Nets assistant Royal Ivy. That's interesting. And I think some people would agree with you. And I've heard Joey Wright's name even mentioned because he's been an assistant coach. He's been a head coach in the G League. I think he's been a head coach overseas as well. Another one of those lifetime longhorns that could maybe put the BBs back in the box. I just... Look, Juwan Howard's the best example you could give in terms of a player-turned-coach at his alma mater that had immediate success. But I mentioned it a couple of minutes ago. I mean, Juwan Howard walked into an amazing situation. Now, he's done a great job keeping that situation amazing, and he's still recruiting really, really well. I'll give him credit. But, I mean, John Beeline had played in two national title games as the head coach at Michigan, and he only left because he got a job in the NBA. It's not like things had fallen apart and he got fired. Like, he was doing so well, he got a job in the NBA. So... That's not the situation Texas is in. Like, the cupboard was full for Juwan Howard. Shaka Smart is leaving not a whole lot here at Texas, right? Because uh, of the roster turnover, and this team has not had a lot of success over the past decade. So I think uh, it'd be more likely to be, I don't want to put the Patrick Ewing curse on him, because I think Patrick Ewing might have been fired if Georgetown didn't win the Big East and make the NCAA tournament this year. But I just, like, I want a coach who's, who's proven that he can build a program and win as a head coach in college basketball. I just, I don't know if this situation is right to take a chance on an alumni like Royale Ivy. Like, I just, I would rather know that I'm getting a guy who's already built a program and has already won at this level. But I bet there are a lot of Longhorn fans, like I said, who would agree with you, and I bet he would be in consideration. And I'd like to think he'd at least get an interview, at least get a shot, if, uh, if and when this job does open up. I like that take. Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, kind of wraps it up for basketball, which perfect because literally on the Monday after that NCAA tournament loss, Steve Sarkeesian had his opening press conference hmm. in the spring talking about you know finally being able to watch practices and run the show in Austin uh, for the, and run the show as a head coach for the first time in you know over five years. So. Uh, first day of practice was Tuesday. The Longhorns are going on a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday schedule. And I kind of just want to open it up to you. You know, what, what, what are some of the things that you're looking for? Um, obviously we can kind of start off with some bad news with Jake Smith, possibly breaking his, his foot, according to Steve Sarkeesian could miss some time in the spring, if not all the spring. Uh, so that obviously is not a good way to start off spring practice, especially for a guy who was, you know, hit by injury with a hamstring problem last year. So uh, you want to talk about wide receiver a little bit, because I kind of feel like there's an opportunity, there's a lot of opportunity 
for a lot of different players here this spring yeah. at wide receiver. Kind of unfortunately created by injury, but, you know, football is a next man up game. Yeah, I feel bad for Jake Smith for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously he's hurt. I wish him all the best throughout his surgery and throughout his rehab process, but he's going to miss out on some pretty valuable reps. And I still think Jake Smith is going to be able to compete for playing time when he comes back. No question about that. But, you know, he's a guy who over his first two years hasn't quite lived up to the hype, hasn't quite lived up to the expectations. Now, a lot of that blame probably goes on Tom Herman and the lack of scheme and imagination and creativity in this offense the last couple of years. But it's not like Jake Smith is a solidified starter, right? This is not Roy Williams before his last year getting hurt. This is not Jordan Shipley getting hurt towards like, ah, that guy could get hurt. He can miss all the spring. He'll still be our number one wide receiver. No problem. So I feel bad for Jake Smith, man. I mean, he's going to be a little bit behind in terms of learning the offense and obviously in terms of, you know, getting all of the reps that he should be getting. So that sucks. But I agree with you, man. I mean, there's a lot of talent at this wide receiver position. We're not sure what to make of it because the wide receivers were awful last year, but we're not sure if that was a Tom Herman problem or if that was, a you know, the wide receivers themselves problem. I'm fascinated to see what Steve Sarkeesian can do with this offense, but specifically the wide receivers, because the last couple of years at Alabama, he was scheming guys open all the time. Now, I know Texas doesn't have a Devontae Smith or a Jerry Judy or a Jalen Waddle or a Henry Ruggs. I know that. Hell, Alabama might have two or three other receivers that I didn't mention who might be better than anybody that Texas has right now. But those guys were schemed open, Joe. So I'm excited. I, we'll learn some of it in the spring, and we'll hear about which guys are stepping up in the spring. But damn it, I cannot wait for the fall to see how that group progresses because I do think there's a chance for a few guys in that wide receiver room to have breakout seasons in 2021. I, I you're on the track that I'm on, and, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm thinking about putting this up on Inside Texas some point this week. It's a premise for a post. Basically, the only guy right now that is of the top line receivers, I think you've got in that group, I consider Troy O'Meary, Jordan Whittington, Jake Smith, and Josh Moore. If you go on inside Texas, uh, we, we noted uh, that Josh Moore missed Tuesday's practice. So basically there was only one guy from that top line group who was healthy enough uh, to participate in practice because O'Meary is still recovering from his ACL injury. Obviously just mentioned more Jake Smith got hurt. Jordan Whittington, he's got his own injury history. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of opportunity for guys like Marcus Washington, Kelvante Dixon. uh, You know, uh, I I had the list up earlier, but basically think of a receiver and they've got a chance this upcoming spring to really learn a lot in the playbook and make some plays with, you know, questioned availability of some of, of that top four receiver group. And it's going to be a, an interesting task to figure out what receiver is making the most of it, considering there is an ongoing quarterback battle and an ongoing left tackle battle, and they're facing probably the most experienced and athletic group on the other side of the ball in those corners. So there's going to be a lot of chances for these guys to prove themselves. I don't think there are anybody who's going to be finding out uh, that they're the next Heisman Trophy winner but I think there's a chance for Steve Sarkeesian to make sure that a lot of these guys who maybe went into this spring down the depth chart have an opportunity to get a lot of live reps during install. Something that they made uh, that he made a big point to mention both Monday and Tuesday about how 
they're going to throw a lot at them in these first five to six practices in order to make sure that they can recall it when it's time for the real games to be played in the fall. No doubt. I like that. I like that. Install as much as you possibly can in the spring so you're not having to learn a whole hell of a lot of new stuff when you get to the fall. But there's an opportunity for a lot of guys at wide receiver to get some playing time this spring and hopefully turn that into success in the fall. Alvante Woodard, I don't know if you'd mention him. I would throw his name on that list as well. Look, Tom Herman, we know this. We've talked about this. He recruited really, really well. And there are a lot of three, four, and five-star players at wide receiver on this team. They just haven't panned out yet. So the hope is Steve Sarkeesian and Andre Coleman and the rest of this offensive coaching staff can get the best out of those players, can maximize the talent that we know those guys have. So once again, I'm very, very curious to see what happens there. And I'm hoping we get some positive reports from that wide receiver room. Because I think your first tier of receivers that you mentioned is probably accurate in terms of the guys most likely to start, the guys most likely to get significant reps when we get to Saturdays in the fall. But I do think there are plenty of opportunities for those other guys, if you will, to uh, to step up and steal some run. Yeah, what about the uh, – it's kind of interesting. We started with wide receiver. The most notable battle this upcoming spring is going to be for quarterback to succeed Sam Ellinger. And uh, speaking of Sam Ellinger, what do you think of uh, Casey Thompson going from number 8 to number 11? Ooh, um, is he a big major Applewhite fan? Is he a big Derek Johnson fan? I don't know. I mean, 11 feels like more of a traditional quarterback number, I guess. Then again, I don't know. There have been some phenomenal number eights throughout the course of NFL history, throughout the course of football history. So I don't know. I don't make too much of it. I wish I had a hotter take than that, Joe. What about you? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are like, oh, how, what are you doing? That's Sam's number. Well, I mean, Sam was a really, really good player. But let's let's not think that he was one of the all-time, all-time greats, super-duper transcendent. Because if he were, I think Tom Herman would still be the head coach right now. And Texas has extremely, extremely clear standards on what it takes to not issue a jersey or anything like that. Uh, Sam Ellinger... He did not meet those standards. So, mm. yeah, it may be a tough bullet to bite for you know a couple of weeks, but it's college. Yeah. I mean, what What do you think, Sam? Guys, what do you think Sam thinks about that? Right? You think Sam's upset? Do you think he views it as, oh, Casey Thompson's paying his respects? You know, he's trying to carry on the legacy of the number eleven as QB one at Texas. Like, do you think Sam is any uh, strong feeling either way on this thing? I doubt he cares. To be honest with you, I think he's got some more important pressing matters to, to get to as far as his future career. No, that was just kind of one way I wanted to jump into the argument there a little bit. Not the argument. That's what it's going to end up becoming. Won't be the first time we've had issues between number one and number 11 at the quarterback position this century at Texas. And I asked Steve Sarkeesian on Tuesday, you know, what's that process look like? And uh, he gave me a really short answer. And, I, you know, that's fine. I can respect it. He doesn't want to give too much away. He doesn't really want to say anything on day one of a quarterback battle in spring football. Uh, but he basically said Hudson and Casey rotated with the ones, and that's what it's going to be throughout the spring. And earlier in February, I wrote, basically, I wrote a story on Inside Texas about what does a quarterback battle look like under Steve Sarkeesian. And I went all the way back to when he was a quarterback coach at USC and granted he he had a voice out that would always be able to outvote him uh in the room uh with Pete Carroll and then 
but the, the, the long and short of it was that he doesn't rush into it. There's, I highly, highly doubt that anybody is going to be named the starting quarterback this spring. If it does happen, uh, does that say that a candidate just mastered the offense better than anybody and did it at a transcendent level? I think so, but I also am very doubtful that's going to happen. So uh, really curious to see what happens with, with this spring as far as quarterback goes, because even Steve Sarkeesian mentioned, I think in his opening press conference, you know, he's not going to go to a program that doesn't have something to work with at quarterback. And he talked about how he was able to watch during Alabama prep for the college football playoff. He watched Casey Thompson come in and swing the ball around in the Alamo Bowl against Colorado. So he's had a good impression of him. And of course, Hudson Card has had a positive reputation within the quarterback community since he was at Lake Travis, I think kind of starting with his time at Lake Travis and succeeding Matthew Baldwin. So, uh, you know, I, I think that despite there being some uh, interest at, at wide receiver, quarterback is obviously going to be the thing to watch this spring. It's going to be the most scrutinized battle because, as Steve Sarkeesian said, it's the most important position on the field. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we're going to get an answer from Steve Sarkeesian before the spring is over on who is going to be QB1 for this football team. I just think this quarterback competition is going to go into the fall. Now, maybe internally they'll find an answer before spring is over, but I just don't think we'll get a public announcement on who QB1 is going to be before we get to very close to game week on September 4th against Louisiana. Obviously the most important position on the field. Obviously the most fascinating position battle that Texas will go through. And I agree with you 100%. I believe Sark 100%. He wouldn't have taken this job if he didn't feel good about the quarterback room when he took this job. And obviously he feels good about the future of the quarterback room with what we think he's going to accomplish on the recruiting trail. And hell, he's already accomplished some pretty good things on the recruiting front when it comes to quarterbacks. But uh, yeah, for me, man, it's just... I don't know. To me, it feels like Casey Thompson has a slight lead over Hudson Card, and some people might disagree with that, and I get it. It's a new coaching staff, so maybe you throw old performances out the window, but with what Casey Thompson did in the Alamo Bowl and the fact that he has been on a college campus for three years, like to me, it tells me that he would have the lead going into camp, even if guys are rotating. To me, it feels like Casey Thompson would have the lead in this quarterback battle, but it's not significant enough to announce a starter, and I don't think it's significant enough for Hudson Card or to say that Hudson Card does not have a chance. Something that's sarcastic to consider, though, Joe, and this is a tough situation for him here. We know how often quarterbacks like to transfer in today's age of college football. I mean, hell, Casey Thompson already had his name in the transfer portal once, and he withdrew his name a couple of years ago. Like, quarterbacks these days, if they're not promised playing time, a lot of them are going to transfer. They really are. So, Steve Sarkeesian has to weigh that a little bit when making his decision. Now, look, most importantly, he has to put the best guy out there. He has to put the guy that gives Texas the best chance to win out on the field. But, you know, you run the risk of, hey, if it's Hudson Card who wins the job, Casey Thompson... In his fourth year in college, might say, I don't want to be here anymore, right? Like, I just lost the job to a redshirt freshman. Why the hell would I stick around? If I can't start over this guy now, then I'm never going to start at the University of Texas. So if he transfers, then all of a sudden your backup quarterback is a true freshman. Charles Wright, who I love Charles Wright. I called his games in high school. Great kid. I think he's got the potential to be a really, really good player. But you don't want a true freshman as your backup quarterback. Like, you don't want to be one injury away 
from your backup quarterback playing. So that's another factor that goes into this decision, Joe. It's a little bit more complex with the transfer portal than this decision was in years past. Yeah, that, that's the thing. It's, and I don't think anybody would blame Casey Thompson if, you know, if it were to go Hudson Card's way for finding playing time. I mean, he sat patiently behind Sam Ellinger, uh, never had an opportunity really until an injury befell Sam Ellinger in his last game to get extended playing time. So it would make sense. I mean, the guy, if he's got his degree, even if he doesn't have his degree, you know, go get playing time. That's, of course, you go to <laughs> – you go to college to wink, wink, get an education, and most do. Most are very serious about that, and I'm sure Casey is as well. But you also go to play football, and not to practice football, but to play, playing games, to do meaningful things. So I think if if, if he if it turns out that Card is the guy uh, in the upcoming fall, you know, I think everybody would be more than they would understand completely. But like you said, that's why Steve Sarkeesian really doesn't need to get into a hurry as far as making a decision on that front. Mm-hmm. What else in spring football are you you're trying to track? There's a lot of different stuff going on with both offense and defense. I'll give you one quick special teams interjection. I think, you know, I punted back in high school, not very well, oh, but yeah. I kind of like it. Remember, Ryan Bucheski is out for this spring, and Texas has Isaac Pearson heading their way, another Aussie. I think that there's going to be some positive reviews of Pearson uh, at Texas. I don't know if he's going to do enough to take over the job from a senior. Uh, that'd kind of be surprising. And But, I mean, at the same time, I think there's a lot of people who are with the Pro Kick program who are pretty excited about Pearson and what he's able to do. So, a little brief special teams interjection. <laughs> of course, he's still got Cameron Dicker, who I think, according to the roster, is now 6'1", 220. Uh, but, you know, I think that's something to, to maybe keep an eye on. Number 49, uh, kicking the balls there for Texas. But what, uh, what other positions are you watching? Or what other storylines are you watching as far as spring football for the yeah. Horns? Yeah, I'm not as enamored with the special teams conversation or competition as you are. But uh, maybe something to watch there. Oh, man. Secondary. I'm really looking at secondary. I'll start with offense first, though. I'll go tight ends as well. Uh, Apparently, there were some two tight end sets in the first day of spring football, and you've got Cade Brewer, you've got Jared Wiley, you've got Malcolm Epps, you've got Juan Davis, you've got Gunnar Helm, and you've got Braden Lebrock, who I don't think is participating in the spring, or at least he's hurt right now, but you've got some weapons there, and those guys, that position was just never that good under Tom Herman after Andrew Beck left, so... I wonder if Steve Sarkeesian is going to make that a focal point of this offense, and I wonder if any of those guys are going to be able to step up and be an impact player at that tight end spot. But the secondary, the defensive backfield, uh, who are going to win the cornerback jobs, who's going to win the safety jobs, right? I mean, Darian Dunn, the grad transfer, coming from McNeese State, the cornerback, is he good enough to steal a job away from Deshaun Jameson or Josh Thompson, the guys who started for most of the year last year? What about Anthony Cook? Steve Starkeesian singled Anthony Cook out after the first day of practice yesterday. And he said, hey, Anthony Cook really stood out. He played really well yesterday. So is Anthony Cook finally going to live up to that potential? Is he going to be a consistent starter for this football team? And then at safety, Joe, 
I mean, you lose Chris Brown, you lose Caden Stearns. Those are two of your starters from last year, two guys who were going to play in the NFL. How do you replace those guys? We know there's talent there, but who's going to actually step up in Pete Kwiatkowski's defense and take those starting spots at safeties? You assume B.J. Foster will be one of them, but uh, who else is going to make the cut for starting safety? So I would look at that a lot. I mean, defensive backfield, you can never have enough coverage in the Big 12 Conference, right? This is a pass-happy league. You have to have a good secondary. Texas has obviously struggled with the secondary over the past few years. Can this coaching staff and can this crop of players bring back DBU here in Austin? Yeah, I think the secondary is where my eyes are going to be, too. Linebacker, you just kind of have to hope for the best at this point with the way the, the position has gone, and I think you, you're, you're pretty confident in what you have uh, on a defensive line so long as everybody stays healthy. But, yeah, that secondary replacing two guys who are trying to make their names in the NFL is going to be big, and that's why over inside Texas – uh, we've got a lot of details on those defensive backfield battles. One of the news that's been made and one that was reflected on the Texas sports roster is that Brendan Schooler has switched to defensive back. And he was a guy, I think, in his freshman year at Oregon, recorded four uh, interceptions. Obviously, he's a special teams ace. Uh, it's another guy back there, I think, with a good capability of providing some heady play back there. Of course, I think B.J. Foster and, honestly, Jaron Thompson kind of seemed like the favorite to, at, at this point. Uh, but I think what you really have to watch is those corner spots. You mentioned Anthony Cook and Darian Dunn. You know, I think what one thing that needs to be uh, taken note of is how is that nickel spot used in this in this particular defense with both Chris Ash and kind of sort of with Todd Orlando. Uh, it was basically I'd say 65% linebacker, 35% defensive back, and I think you saw that reflected in who they put there. They put. P.J. Foster, they put Chris Adam Mora, they put P.J. Uh, Locke, guys who are a little bit thicker playing above, you know, probably around 215 or so, 215 or so pounds. And you mentioned Anthony Cook at nickel. That, yeah, he played that position last year, but I didn't think that was the right fit for him. I also didn't think it was the right fit for Xavier Alford, who's now at USC. Anyway, I think what's going to happen is that that uh, nickel position is going to look more more third defensive back than extra linebacker on the field. I, I think that coverage is going to be important there. He will still have some linebacker-esque duties. Uh, but at the same time, I think that it, there's that battle for corner is going to determine what happens at that nickel spot because, you know, there's only two corner spots left and right. You got three guys and Dunn, Jamison, and Thompson. You even got some young guys in Keaton Crawford and Jade Barron. There's, there's plenty of guys there who could man those spots. So then what happens at nickel? Does it go to the, the third-place guy? Does it go to, you know, Anthony Cook, who's in that role? Does it stay with Chris Adamora, who uh, is probably profiles a little bit better to safety than, than third corner? That's what I want to see. I want to know how those guys are handling the new responsibilities in Pete Kwiatkowski's defense, and then – I think one more thing you have to look at on defense is uh, who, where the pass rush is going to come from. Uh, that's that's a pretty simple problem that needs to be solved, and uh, there's it's going to be interesting to see that happen at the same time as Texas breaking in new offensive tackles. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. I'm trying to think what else is going to catch my eye. I mean, obviously the new coaching staff, uh, just fascinated to see what they bring to the table. But I think a lot of Texas fans are – 
just in full wait and see mode. I mean, we've got PTSD from the last couple of coaches here at Texas to where we've bought in, we've drank the Kool-Aid, but we just didn't get the results we wanted to see. So there are some Texas fans who are like, man, to hell with the spring. I just want to see what happens on September 4th. And Texas opens up against a really, really quality opponent on September 4th against a good Louisiana team that, uh, what, won double-digit games last year that has more returning talent than anybody in college football. They've got a really, really talented head coach in Billy Napier who is – you know, been being sought after, and he was sought after by some pretty big time jobs this past off season. So, a lot of Longhorn fans are like, "Man, I just want to see the results, right? I want to see what this team looks like on uh, Saturdays in the fall." But I'll tell you what, I've loved something that Steve Sarkeesian has said, and he said it pretty much since his opening press conference. But he harped on it again on Monday. He just talked about accountability, and he talked about the buy-in, and he said you have to be bought in, you have to be accountable 100% of the time, right? You have to be bought in 100% of the time. And it just didn't feel like we had that buy-in from players, from coaches, from fans, from everybody. And it doesn't matter that much with the fans. It matters more with the guys inside the locker room. But it just felt like we didn't have that throughout the Tom Herman era. I know for a fact, I think we all know for a fact, that we didn't have that last year at the end of the Tom Herman era. So I just like the stuff that Steve Sarkeesian said, man. He said everything right to this point. The all-gas-no-breaks hashtag is obviously something that uh, has caught on very, very well with this fan base, but he's saying the right things. He's bought into his coaching staff. The initial reports are that the players like the staff at this point. And, uh, man, I'm just I'm looking forward to it, man. I love spring ball because uh, you know, it gives us some stuff to talk about, and obviously it means that football is getting closer and closer to coming back, but it just feels a little bit different every time you have a new coach in here. Yes, sir, I agree completely. So it's just glad to, glad to have it. We didn't have it last year. Uh, a, lot, a lot of optimism, of course, the new coach bump. So ready ready to see it happen. Anything else from spring football? We kind of hit the two uh, big storylines uh, that happened in Texas athletics this past week. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm scrolling through my notes here to see if there's anything that we haven't hit. Uh, Brendan Schooler, now listed as a defensive back on the TexasSports.com official team roster. I think there were some reports. I think you guys at Inside Texas had this about a potential position change for him flipping from wide receiver to defensive back I will ask you this and I asked this question to Rod and Kevin on the show earlier this week now of the six starters who will be out for spring ball when I say six starters I mean six guys who started on last year's team who will be out for spring ball this year you've got Jake Smith Derek Kerstetter on offense DeMarvion Overshone, Tavondre Sweat on defense, then Ryan Buchevsky, who you mentioned, and Justin Mater on special teams. Out of those guys, which guy do you think is is going to miss out the most by not being able to be a part of things this spring? That's a really good question. Uh, I think Derek Kerstetter, and that's really unfortunate because, you know, he's coming back for a fifth year, recovering from a pretty gruesome injury, but he's a guy that these coaches need to see where he fits. It's not probably not going to be center again with Jake majors. Is it going to be right tackle? Like he was before he had to move inside. Is it going to be guard, which he's played before? Uh, I think it's him. And it just really, really stinks. Cause that, like I said, bad injury suffered late in the year. Uh, but that's a, you know, if you're a swing guy, you kind of pride yourself on being a you know jack of all trades type of thing, but at a certain point, especially this year, considering 
he is about to be a fifth-year senior. He is, you know, uh, he has, I think, NFL potential with his versatility. Uh, he's got to be able to show that one of those spots is going to be his, or else, uh, you know, I don't know where he fits into the equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that answer. I mean, Jake Smith to me comes top of mind just because of the depth that there is in that wide receiver room and the fact that, you know, he hasn't done enough to really solidify one of those starting wide receiver positions and just learning Sark's offense, I think most importantly, uh, just not being able to get those reps with this new offensive scheme, I think is going to hurt him. DeMarvion Overshone might be another guy that I'd throw in there too. Uh, that guy's a starter. I don't think there's any question about that, but new defensive system. And hell, last year he didn't have a spring, right? He made the change from safety to linebacker before last season, and he didn't have a spring to really learn the position. Now, he ended up playing really, really well for Texas in the fall, and that's what's most important. But completely new defensive scheme, still trying probably to learn some of the ins and outs of what goes into playing the linebacker position. I really think he could have used this spring and just those extra reps in PK's defense, but he won't have that. But like I said, I mean, Overshone's got a starting spot uh, on lock. I would think, so he will be all right there. Uh, anything else, man? Anything else we need to hit spring football-wise? Obviously, we'll be talking about this in uh, in future podcasts leading up to the spring game on April 24th, but anything else uh, catching your eyes and ears from one practice down there on the 40? I think we've, we've touched on it all. Quarterback, wide receiver, defensive back. I think that's the, the main one. Obviously, left tackle, offensive mm-hmm. line could be one to watch, but can only fit so much into uh, an hour podcast. Yeah. No, no doubt, no doubt. All right, that's going to do it then for this edition of the 1&O podcast. Appreciate everybody listening. Can't thank y'all enough for the continued support. Be sure to follow Joe on Twitter at josephcook89 and check out the great work that he does over at InsideTexas.com. All of the insider notes you need all spring long, all year long, of course, but throughout spring football too, Inside Texas has you covered. And follow me on Twitter at Brad Kellner and listen to the Triple Option with RBKD weekdays from 3 to 7 p.m. on the Horn and online at hornfm.com. Thanks again to our sponsors, Audiovisual Consultations, and Altstat Beer. Please like, please share, please rate, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. And we'll be back next week for another edition of the 1 and 0 podcast. Y'all stay safe, y'all stay healthy, and hook them.